Oh my god. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Tough Cut Podcast Sequel Showdown Part 1. I'm Matthew. I'm Alex. And I'm Jake. On this show, we have eight movies go head-to-head in a bracket. They fight their way to the top where one movie is crowned king, queen, anything in between. This month's theme for the bracket is Sequel Showdown. Yeah, Sequel Showdown. We picked movies that are sequels. They are not the first movie in their series. We're not just comparing these movies on like their quality as films, but what they mean as a sequel and what it means to be a sequel. So it's sort of a combination of both of those factors. So that's like acting, theme, cinematography, but also like, hey, what does this do as a sequel? What does it do for the universe? What does it do for the world, etc.? And how does it compare to the original? Let's get into what's in the bracket. Anyone uh, want to go first? What they pitched? Yeah, sure. I picked Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, released in 1992, directed by Chris Columbus. I also pitched Creed, released in 2015, directed by Ryan Coogler. And for my third pick, I chose Shrek 2, released in 2004, directed by Andrew Anderson, Kelly Asbury, and Conrad Vernon. All right. Good picks. That's exciting. Um, I'm I'm pretty happy with them. Yeah, for sure. My picks are Kill Bill Volume 2, directed by Quentin Tarantino, 2004, and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, uh, 2014, directed by Matt Reeves. I'm feeling really strongly about these two. I think those are be... great picks. I'm so excited to Honestly, see where they go. I think both of them will probably make their way to the final. They're on opposite sides of the bracket. Yeah, I mean, uh, I am. I have the movie boy here, guys. I'm, I'm real excited. Uh, and I pitched The Dark Knight, released in 2008, directed by Christopher Nolan. Evil Dead 2, 1987, uh, directed by Sam Raimi, and The Godfather Part 2, released in 1974 by Francis Ford Coppola. Nice. So we've got like a we've got a good arrangement of movies. I think a, a nice variety. It'll definitely be interesting to see how things shake up. Yeah. And before we get into it, before we get into the nitty gritty, I just want to give out a spoiler warning. We will be spoiling these movies hardcore and also a content warning if you want to watch them with us we do encourage you watch along but some of these movies have depictions of violence and assault and can get a little graphic so just be on the lookout for that and if you uh, do make your way to kill bill volume one um there is specifically a depiction of sexual assault so i think that's a really important one to call out absolutely with that um our first matchup of the show is home alone 2 versus the dark knight um so i guess i will Start things off by introducing The Dark Knight. As I said, you know, released in 2008, directed by Christopher Nolan. Uh, Basically, it it follows the story of Bruce Wayne, who, spoilers, if you weren't aware, is Batman as he battles the Joker. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. It's a really, a really tough one to get spoiled for you. It's about as difficult as um, any spoilers coming out of The Sixth Sense, (laughs) um, which, (laughs) which I'm not about to spoil on this show. Not yet, at least. (laughs) Um, as Batman and the Joker battle over the proverbial heart of Gotham, which may really be the heart of the oh-so-dreamy Harvey Dent. Um, As to why I picked this movie, I think it is just such a fantastic example um, of a movie that builds upon everything set up in its predecessor and really expands the world in meaningful ways, all while being just such a fun and thrilling ride throughout. What about um, you guys as far as initial reactions uh, to The Dark Knight? What was it like rewatching it or watching it for the first time? But you've both seen it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, uh, this, this is a movie that like my brother and I like loved it like growing up. We like didn't get along too, too much. So like watching movies was like our crux. And I vividly remember watching this one in theaters. I 
very much enjoy superhero movies and kind of that genre. Uh, so I, I mean, I'm a fan. Uh, I've definitely, this is one of the movies on, in our bracket that I've probably seen the most times. Um, and yeah, it's that kind of like nostalgic trip for me and like my relationship with my brother that like brings it really, really, uh, sweet. My thoughts. I do not like this movie. I used to think the only reason that I don't like this movie was because I don't like Christian Bale as Batman. But I've realized the reason I don't like the reasons that I don't like this movie are plenty and I'm excited to get into them later. Um, But in first, I will introduce the movie that I brought. Home Alone 2 Lost in New York was released in 1992, directed by Chris Columbus. It follows Kevin McAllister as once again, he is alone for Christmas, except this time, rather than being home alone in his own house, he is lost in the Big Apple, which is very scary. Uh, He gets into some hijinks, acting like a rich aristocrat, uh, and we get that incredible, goofy action sequence at the end, uh, and he reunites with his mother, all in time for Christmas. Yep, and none of his other family members. He hates them all, except his mom. (laughs) I mean, really, he only... (laughs) He kind of really only reunites with his mom. All his flashbacks, he doesn't give a shit about the rest of them. No, no, even the... Even the bully older brother like looks at him and goes, good job, Kevin. Oh, okay. so, yeah, sorry. Yeah, they've reconciled that whole relationship. I'm sure there's no trauma at all anymore. We'll, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. This movie for me was kind of actually a wild card pick. I do not have a very strong relationship to the Home Alone series. It was never they were never movies that I really watched a ton as a kid. So there's no real nostalgia there. I think just leading up to the holidays this year, I saw this movie and I thought, huh, that'd be fun. Um, but I think you guys actually have like stronger relationships with this movie than I do. Yeah, I can actually hop on that one. I love this movie. Um, my family, when I was growing up, used to watch the Home Alone movies like every single year. Uh, very much a holiday tradition. Um, these movies are like so quotable to us. They have so many super memorable lines, super memorable sequences. Yeah, it's just very close at heart and rewatching it was a ton of fun. Yeah, I mean, this movie has literally one of my first loves uh, on the screen, uh, Tim Curry in it. So, like, it's hard not to put it up there as one of my favorites. Um, I also, like, when I was a kid, I watched this, like, literally Home Alone. And uh, it really, like, it's just a sweet movie. I, I always have fun watching it. Like, it's, it's a good, it's one of the go-to holiday movies. It has to be. John Hughes, he's a part of this, too. Isn't that crazy? You gotta love it. I think, you know, getting right into the comparisons, the big thing that stands out to me is the way that action works in these movies. Um, I think that one of my big criticisms that I have of The Dark Knight is that I don't feel like it's a superhero movie, but the action sequences to me don't hold any weight. I don't feel like I get the importance of those scenes the way that I do in, for example, Home Alone 2. Like, I feel the inevitability of the sticky bandits getting beat to shit when they're chasing Kevin and then become trapped in the house with Kevin. (laughs) For me, I don't get that same weight and importance in the dark Knight action sequences. Like when he's beating up the federal agents who are uh, raiding that tower at the end, or when he's fighting the Joker, I feel like you don't really, I I don't feel the emotional weight in those scenes. I actually think I kind of disagree with that only because I think they just impact in different ways. Like Home Alone 2 has the kind of slapstick. You're literally hearing everything. There's that one like really funny scene where like Marv gets electrocuted and then like the skeleton pops up for a second. Love that scene. That's great. 
But I think in The Dark Knight, it's not about like the pows and the wops. It's like the score adds a lot to the action sequences for me. And also like the debates like in between. Like it's about what's going on in the context outside of it. More like kind of what the battle is. Not like the punch-punch battle, but like the action sequences of things building up around it. Yeah, I also think that there's this big piece of that they are obviously employing their action sequences in very different ways. Like the whole point of these like super exaggerated sound effects and like the weight of things in Home Alone um, is because they're being played up as slapstick. Uh, Whereas, you know, punching a guy in real life doesn't make like a pow sound effect. (laughs) For Um, you, maybe you're a weak little bitch. (laughs) I'm not saying it should. Yeah, Matt, maybe you don't go pow. But I'm, I'm just saying like for me. The the Dark Knight has these action sequences where there are a bunch of cars exploding. You have action sequences where there he's like paragliding into a building and, you know, like all these sequences seem like they're going to build. I feel like the action sequences in the Dark Knight are in the movie so people can look at it and say, wow, that's cool. Whereas I feel like the action sequences in Home Alone 2 fulfill the like exact purpose of showing Kevin be alone, afraid and figure out how to do it like they could kill Kevin. Like there are tense, serious moments in Home Alone, too. I I don't know if I ever feel like tension watching Home Alone specifically for the reason that how the action scenes are played up. Like it's very clearly all played for a joke when Joe Pesci is like pointing a gun at at shit. What's his name? Macaulay Culkin? Big lips, buffy kid. What's his name? Macaulay Culkin. Macaulay Culkin. When when like they are standing behind him and have a gun, that is a tense moment. You know, like it's played up and it's in a kid's movie, but like I feel like I feel more tension there. I feel more danger for Kevin McAllister than I do ever so, for Bruce okay, Wayne. So you're the Dark saying Knight. that in the Dark Knight, when those little kids were in the backseat with finger guns and they exploded cars with their mind, <laughs> that was intense to you? R- ridiculous. Ridiculous. Uh, moving, <laughs> moving past Jake's comment there. <laughs> I, I do think that like like at least personally watching the prisoner's dilemma situation in the climax climax of the Dark Knight between, you know, the the ship full of prisoners and then the um, citizens of Gotham that to me is like a really really tense sequence whereas I don't necessarily feel the same thing watching Home Alone obviously I think that's you know purposive we want the cut of Home Alone 2 where they shoot the kid <laughs> yeah honestly I want, I want the cut of Home Alone 2 where Kevin McAllister has to decide if he's gonna kill the sticky bandits or if he's gonna kill his parents I vote he kill his parents, honestly. They're really <laughs> shitty to Kevin. Like, they're re- I was re-watching this, like, as a kid, I'm like, oh, ha-ha, fun. But, like, as a, like an adult, I'm like, no. No, you're so rude to your child. C- comparatively, I think Kevin is like a... He's like a little jigsaw with his traps. In a different world, he <laughs> becomes John Kramer. <laughs> I think Kevin... Kevin McAllister is a surprisingly um, complicated character because you have moments of him being so childish and, like... Uh, Buzz bullied me and I just pushed him back like the way he like responds to things sometimes. But then you also have these like incredibly like thoughtful, complicated like plans that he makes that are so crazy. 
you know, I think he's he such an interesting character. character. I also think it carries on the back of Macaulay Culkin. Like this is one of the better child oh, actor performances. 1000%. He exudes charisma and screen presence as a child, which is so uncommon. Yeah, it's yeah. very like John Hughes is very like Ferris Bueller's Day Off swagger. Like it's it's so cool to watch that in a little kid. It's very, very cool. Absolutely. Yeah, it's awesome. A new conversation that I can bleed into. Another reason why I don't like The Dark Knight. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Comparing Kevin McCall, like Macaulay Calkins charisma to then Christian Bale as Batman. I think he is so boring. I think we don't get any emotional weight from him. We don't get any like real conviction from him during those action sequences and during those intense moments. I don't feel any motivation from Batman. Like I get I know why he's doing it because I'm a big Batman fan. But like part of the movie is like he wants to give up the mantle. He wants to give up the cape. Right. We don't see him really talk about why. Like we don't get that from him, you know. So I feel like it's just like Bruce Wayne Batman is so poorly written in this movie that I just I can't get behind it. I do think there's like Bruce Wayne Batman is is I'm not saying Christian Bale's the best Batman ever, especially like in this film. I kind of don't like how dumb how he is about like Rachel and stuff like that. But I do think Rachel. one Rachel, where's Rachel? Um, <laughs> <laughs> where's the trigger? You're gonna love me. <laughs> uh, anyway, but like I, I think that this movie benefits from its other characters also carrying emotional weight. I think Harvey Dent, Two-Face, Aaron Eckhart has incredible emotional scenes. But I also think in general, like Batman is allowed emotional scenes. Like the interrogation scene, I thought was fantastic between Heath Ledger and Batman. Like that's a very like high, like emotional one. But I I really think like Commissioner Gordon and Two-Face carry a lot more emotional weight in this one. And you can get away with that and benefit in that because this is a comic book movie and Batman isn't, the like main character in this that's what the yeah, benefit is I, I i agree with jake hugely um i think that's one of the biggest things in this movie is that the emotional cores in a lot of ways are some of these like you know secondary or tertiary characters that is in the sense that joker and the batman are the primary characters of the story i think harvey dent is arguably just as important i think arguably that commissioner gordon is just as important and i think that's where you see a lot of the emotional weight um because i do agree to a certain extent that there probably isn't a ton of um like it's not really well shown in the movie you're more told that batman wants to put down the mantle than you are like you know scenes of bruce wayne like being exhausted or exasperated or you know etc but I, I think overall, though, I agree with Jake just because there's so much we get so much good from other characters. And, you know, like comparatively Home Alone, you've got Kevin and sort of his mother and then like a far third. You get being, the bandits. You get uh, what, what sort of Curry. emotional like I, I, I just don't think that they have like emotional development or emotional characterization to the extent that Harvey Dent, Commissioner Gordon do. Yeah. You know? As much as I love Tim Curry and a very young, surprising appearance from Rob Schneider, like they're they're not they're not getting real emotion. This isn't Rob an Oscar Schneider. Really, like, yeah. Uh, not to not to say their performances are bad. Um no, no, like Tim no, Curry does a great it's job. It's also like the purpose of the movie though. Yeah. Sure, sure. But I like I think that you have to give credit to the Dark Knight though on the back of like, you know, the emotion carried by Harvey Dent is far more central to the conflict of the movie. It's the battle over the heart of Gotham with Harvey Dent being emblematic of that heart in a lot of ways. So I'm so glad you brought that up because this leads into 
my third criticism of the Dark Knight. Wow, I love how this this is just turned into Alex throws criticisms of the Dark Knight at us and we go, hey, wait a minute. I don't agree. <laughs> that was that was inevitably how this conversation was going to go. So the other reason I one of the other reasons I don't like the Dark Knight is because I this is more a moral thing on my part. I just morally and fundamentally disagree with the message the movie concludes in. When Christopher Nolan makes a movie, he's not going to not put his thoughts and like ideas into it. And so, I mean, we've talked a little bit about like all the characters and their development and how all the characters in the movie like represent different philosophical beliefs and different philosophical moral opinions. Well, we haven't actually said that yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've alluded to it. Sure, sure. (laughs) That's part of what makes all the tertiary side characters so complex and interesting. Um, My problem is that when it what's these characters battling for the heart of Gotham, right? The movie concludes on Batman has to like go into hiding and like take the blame for Harvey Dent's fall from grace after killing two cops. Because if people think that Harvey Dent went bad, then anyone can go bad. So they have to blame the vigilante. So that way the Gotham's white knight can stay white. Hated that subtext. Right? <laughs> Christopher Nolan, explain yourself. <laughs> my my big issue is that the the movie culminates in like saying that the people of Gotham are sheep who will follow the powerful voices of stronger so, men. Okay, like okay. the movie, the movie itself, like gives you these strong philosophical viewpoints and then the culmination of the movie the like conclusion what the movie ends on is that gotham the people of gotham are too weak or too stupid to realize the difference and so batman has to go into hiding i fundamentally disagree with that we can Uh, fundamentally disagree (laughs) i do i do want to say rather than this just being a dark knight criticism class and like defending it how does that compare to like home alone 2's like endings and like whatever like meanings like if we're if we're battling these two things and like comparing them like what what does Home Alone 2 like do? I mean, it also has a bunch of issues randomly like put in talking about like homelessness and relationships with family, but it doesn't like hit as hard. I'm like with the pigeon lady. Like, I feel like you need Brenda to Brenda Fricker that. is her name. Right. Yes. Brenda. Brenda. Fricker, we are big uh, fans of Brenda Fricker. Right? We know you had a tough holiday, Brenda. We hope yeah. you're we hope you're doing well. We actually are stands of Brenda Fricker in this household. Um, we don't live together. <laughs> <laughs> Brenda Fricker stands uh, from miles apart. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think it's worth like actually comparing them rather than just like this is like bad and like us being like, oh, this is why we like disagree about it. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. think that's fair. What do you guys think about the the conclusion themes of Home Alone 2? You know, I mean, obviously there is sort of this underlying piece to Home Alone. I guess what you have friendship or something of or, you know. Uh, <laughs> what? Because <laughs> he gives her the doves. Like, I don't know. Like, I genuinely, I'm not sure where I was going with that statement. I think it's like, it's family, it's relationships, it's. But like, what message is that sending? It's, it's seeing people who you don't normally see and appreciating people who you wouldn't normally appreciate. So, appreciating your family, appreciating the homeless pigeon lady on the street who you would normally brush past and try to ignore as much as possible. Hmm. But do they um, really like hu- humanize or like all the, I just feel like they don't they do. do as good a job like with it. 
I, I feel like it's very, I, I just don't think, especially comparing. Yeah, I think they don't do as good a job in Home Alone 2 as they do in the first Home Alone with the old scary man who his family, yeah. he, he has like a fight and with his, his son, neighbor. you know, like I think in the first Home Alone, it's definitely done better, but I still think it's done pretty effectively. And I think what, what I like about the way that it's done in Home Alone 2 is that the pigeon lady shows Kevin a new side of New York that he wouldn't be able to see otherwise. You know, it's this, it, 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 you get this like arc of Kevin in New York and it's like, I'm in New York. I'm so excited. Like I'm going to own the city that goes great. And suddenly they decline the credit card. He gets captured by uh, the wet bandits. He like is suddenly lost and like afraid in the big city. And then Brenda Fricker shows him that even when it's dark and night out, it can still be beautiful. You know, I think that's a pretty sweet message. Sure. Um, Yeah. And like I do. I mean, I the biggest piece of what I want to say is that I agree that the first home alone has its message communicated more effectively and more elegantly than the second one, which I think is really important to consider. However, I also think it's I just really want to call out how much I fundamentally disagree with the big man theory of history being applied to the Dark Knight. I do not think that is like the concluding message at all. I think like that completely ignores the scene of what we see, like the climax of the movie depicted on the boat. That whole message from there is that people are inherently good. It's put in a prisoner's dilemma where game theory would suggest that people, they should just kill the other boat, kill the boat full of people. I kind of disagree about it. I kind of disagree about it saying that people are fundamentally good. I think it says that people are fundamentally weak and can't make decisions. How, how is that the case? They the one guy takes the takes the key and throws it out a window, makes a decision. The other guy about to do it makes the active choice not to, despite saying, that, you know, that he's like going to like the no, whole point is he decides he doesn't want to kill a boat full of people. I don't know that it, it says that he decides that. I think it says that he's too weak to make that decision where the other guy was strong enough to make the decision for the boat. OK, then how is that people aren't inherently good? That's how is how is the guy who made the active choice to throw the key out the window making a strong decision? How is that not him being inherently good to I not think, kill a boat full of people? I think it is him being good. But I think the problem is that then the movie concludes with Batman having to go on the run so that way people stay good. Like that, because otherwise, why does Batman have to take the fall for Harvey Dent? Unfortunately, we are pushing on time. So we, you know, don't necessarily <laughs> like have the ability to go into this as much as I maybe would like to. However, I think what it comes down to is what the contrary philosophies posed by Bruce Wayne or posed by Batman and Harvey Dent represent and what those philosophies represent to the people of Gotham more than it is staining the white knight. You know, you have Batman who represents this vigilantism, you know, which is inherently bringing about order through disorder, bringing about law through crime versus Harvey Dent that is bringing about order through law, which, you know, those are meant to be contradictory philosophies. And Bruce Wayne, in desiring to put down the mantle of Batman, decides that the people of Gotham should not be inspired to follow the law, the rule of vigilantism. That's sort of the whole point. We see that at the very beginning of the movie set up with the prosecution and the capture and Joker, you know, killing these vigilantes dressing up as Batman. Like, I think that's a plot thread run through. I think that is the thematic takeaway. But I think you also see uh, as a plot thread throughout the movie of these people who are ordinary people being written off. You see the Joker's followers as lunatics, as like crazy people who they just write off and say like dealt with very problematically. I think that is also a through line that you see of of people throughout the movie. 
but I think that's less an intentional thematic piece. Like, I don't think Christopher Nolan was coming at the movie trying to be like, hey, we should, you know, write off mental patients and criminals and say they should just be left to the dregs of society. I where I do think it comes through in the movie, but I think it comes. But I don't think it's intentional, whereas I think the theme of like law and order, vigilantism and order, like all of that is intentionally written into the movie, which I think is an important distinction. Yeah. And even like intentionality aside, I kind of agree where like it is still problematic if you didn't intentionally like realize like, you know, demonization of like mental health and all that. Like I, I get that, but also like the Joker as it exists in this film is supposed to just be this contradictory force, like in general. So like the the point of this character intentionally is to contradict the philosophies and challenge them and make people think, even like the audience think. That yeah, the people of Gotham aren't good. If anything, Alex, you watch this movie makes me think that you agree more with the Joker that the people like if you reach the conclusion that like people weren't good in this film, like it like it sounds like it sounds like I mean just from talking about the boat dilemma, or whatever. It sounds like Matthew was trying to say like oh this proves that like people are good, and that felt feels like Batman's camp where he's literally arguing with uh, the Joker. He's like they just prove that people like aren't going to choose whatever, but you're like, no, they made a decision. People are bad. And so like, it feels like you agree with the well, other. Like, camp, I, but would, I, think that's intentional. I would agree if the ending of the movie was different, but I don't think that people were like, I think if it was big man theory, people would have had to made the decision not to blow up the boat because they were like acting in the name of Harvey Dent or something. Okay. But here, here's the thing. Here's the thing I think that we're all missing. And then this is going to tie it up in a bow. It's going to be great. We can move past it. So there, there are two things, right? The ending of the dark Knight is like, you know, either, or, or the theming of like, I'm the hero Gotham deserves, not the one they need. But in home alone two, it's when Marv says, wow, what a fool. <laughs> I do have one more comparison that I want to throw out there that I think is very important. Uh, and I think it's going to be a through line in several of our conversations, but um, it's the kissability of these two characters. Because if you look at Batman's beautiful <laughs> luscious lips and you look at... Are you talking about the kissability of Macaulay Culkin? <laughs> luscious. Look, Those are luscious Macaulay lips. Macaulay Culkin, like one, is a child. Two, if you're an uggo, Macaulay Culkin's not down with it. That guy in the cab, you know, he was he was absolutely not with it. Um, and I think that's really yeah, important Kevin to consider. Yeah, extremely agoraphoric, but also I don't I don't like the thread of saying Macaulay. You can well, say he's an adult Brenda now. Fricker is kissable, or to, I still you're looking at the movies. And that, that's like hanging out in an elementary school and be like, "Don't worry, kids, I'm gonna see you in 15 years." Which no, that's that's still creepy as uh, creepy as shit that's and bad. very that's grooming uh, probably I don't illegal. like it i don't know uh i i just have one more thing to say before we we vote on which movie is going to win here go for it uh batman kicks dogs all right let's do this well look on one side <laughs> donald trump is in home alone yeah we've got right? we've got know, dog man. kicking versus donald trump so like do those kids know which true. one's worse than the other? You if, know, if only Kevin McAllister had set Donald Trump in that great <laughs> maze of a torture chamber he created. How different the world would you know, be. They could have. They could. I saw a petition actually that was really funny online to get. Um, you you know how Christopher Plummer uh, replaced Kevin Spacey in that one movie famously and like got nominated for an Oscar for it. 
people are nominated to make Christopher Plummer digitally inserted into Home Alone 2. And uh, I need that to happen. We, we want the plumber cut. Incredible. Yeah. It's really funny. <laughs> the, plumber, the, the day that happens, you know, my my vote might be different, but let, let's vote. Yeah, who, who let's, let's go into it. Happen. I can Alex, go first. You seem I so think I'm, go for it. I'm pretty explicitly on the side of Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Well, I think I made mine pretty, pretty clear, uh, even, you know, in general, I, I, I do think I lean towards the dark night here. And if my impassioned defense wasn't enough, um, <laughs> I'm also voting for the dark night. And with that, the dark night will be the first of our movies advancing <laughs> to the uh, second stage of the bracket. Very Which exciting. I'm sure Alex is thrilled about. <laughs> so thrilled. Can't wait. You know what? I want everyone to pay attention to this moment because this is where we're going to see a running theme for the whole bracket. Alex, the vanilla boy versus the cinephiles. <laughs> I truly do love Home Alone 2, though. I, I, it's a very good movie. Very good pick. I'm very glad I watched it. Everyone should watch True. it. True. And with that, let's let's jump into our second half of this episode with Creed and Kill Bill Volume 2. Um, Jake. Do you want to introduce Kill Bill Volume 2? Yeah, um, this this really doesn't help my claim when uh, Alex was literally like, versus the cinephiles, and I'm going to go. I picked Kill Bill Volume 2 as one of mine, um, you know, directed by Quentin Tarantino, at least 2004. Um, yeah, th- this film, this film, as far as like a sequel, like I think it talking about um, how do you earn a volume two? How do you earn a two? Like, and what does putting that two do for a film? How does put what is putting that Tokyo drift, if you will, do to a film? <laughs> and uh, no, but like all jokes aside, I, I really think that's where this stems for me. And you know, I'll, I'll open it up to have people's like initial thoughts and whatever. But this is this is my pick, and I, I do think it's a strong pick. Yeah, can I can I jump in there? Um, one, um, I think first and foremost, this movie just oozes Tarantino style in such like an iconic Tarantino yeah. way. Autorship. Yeah, it is. It is auteur theory in some of the truest yeah. sense, which um, that's not using auteur theory to say that other people in production don't contribute hugely to style. Um, that's just saying there's a, hey, a that, large that's... amount of autorship here. Um, and I think yeah. Tarantino does it fantastically. One of the things in relationship to the first Kill Bill that I think this movie does just so well is basically change your your genre. Like the first movie yeah. is so thoroughly um, like a, a like Japanese inspired, like s- like samurai fight movie, which it's fantastic. All the fight scenes in that movie and their gory perfection um, are a joy to watch. But this one slows it down and lets you really simmer in conversation with people in such a fantastic way. It's just super, super enjoyable. Like it, it's an undeniably a Tarantino film. I've always enjoyed this movie and I enjoyed rewatching it. I had not seen the Kill Bills in a long, long time. So I watched both of them in prep for this. And I have to say, like, I totally agree with you that there's a change in tone. But for me, it was a little disappointing because I think the first one built. I totally agree with you. Had this like samurai, like kung fu action movie. And the second one had that. But I feel like it didn't fulfill in the promise of what I wanted that movie to culminate in, you know? And so like, because like the second movie has some great action sequences. Uh, the fight with L in Bud's trailer is a fantastic fight. It's 
such a great twist on like the samurai fight where they're stuck in this confined space so she can't open the sword beautiful but then the culmination against bill i just feel like it i i totally love that it slows down and they have this conversation but then the fact that it doesn't build to a true fight that that like little combat is like fighting on the chairs for like 10 seconds it let me down i was disappointed at the end and like i have to set aside my own like preferences because i very much don't like gore and so all the fighting in these movies was a lot for me but like by the end of the second one i was disappointed that it didn't culminate in the way that i wanted it to so what, what, what I want to say is I think we, we can, we can agree, like, you know, stylistically, if this is one of Tarantino's, like, again, it's, it's Tarantino, just style, like edit, sound, like performance, like Uma Thurman. Oh my God. Amazing. So good. But I'm grateful actually that this film doesn't double down exactly how it was in the first volume. It's more mm-hmm. emotional it's training, psychological. So to Alex's point, like volume one, what volume one does with the bride's external struggle uh, is laid out like in a who's who of killers, but volume two goes into the internal of the bride and gets more personal. Even with the people she goes to kill gets more intimate to Bill. As amazing as the fights were with like the Viper with Orion, Ishin, E, we love Lucy Liu, having the three people she has to kill in the second, the Bill's brother, Bud, L, the copy image of the bride, and Bill himself really flips the script, especially looking at the end fights. Or Oren Ishii, like first the bride, like was so great. That was such a cinematic, a beautiful fight. All like the a hundred like people, the it was great. But versus Bill, one is spectacle and one is conversation, but they end in a similar fashion. I think the bride uses her sword to like literally like the bride uses her sword to end the first one, establishing her as this killer. And then she ends the second one with sheathing her sword and using her hand, almost relinquishing her killer life. That ending things finally by literally her own hand. And maybe, maybe there's potential for her to be a mother. One thing that I think this movie handles super well that is very difficult for a sequel to cover is, especially in action movies, the protagonist has to have this training scene. You know, like there's mm. like a, a yeah. building montage, like their power growing. And for a sequel, it's so hard to justify that when you've already seen them have this training, you've seen them grow in the first movie. And what this movie does, the training with Paime and, you know, learning the one inch punch or the three inch punch to get out of the buried coffin is so cool. Like such a such an incredible scene. Uh, And I just want to say that I want someone to flick their beard at me the way Paime (laughs) flicks their beard at the bride because, oh man, I would feel so proud. Quick, like quick story interjection. This was actually the first Quentin Tarantino film I saw, actually, was the second one. Oh, interesting. It was when I was really young with my brother, and it was my dad there, too. And ever since, like, that, whenever he would, like, show that, he would just, like, mimic that. He didn't even have a beer, but he would do it, like, to us all the time. So I just have that, like, motion in my head. It's, it's so... Having a training montage in your second movie, in the middle of the movie... Such a great, bold move. Like Tarantino in this film, especially really didn't give a shit about timeline and form. And I think it really benefited. So two things I want to throw into the mix um, as far as thoughts, considerations. Um, One, this is a small thing, but this movie, it becomes super apparent how much of a foot fetish Quentin Tarantino has. Um, (laughs) The number of scenes of uh, women with no shoes on slash like taking their shoes off. It's pretty high. So if, you know, 
I don't know where in the cultural zeitgeist Tarantino being a foot fetishist originated. I don't know how people weren't paying attention because it's really obvious. <laughs> uh, two, because I love this movie. I love the existence of how it in, exists in relation to volume one. One thing that I don't know if it quite bothers me, but I think is important to consider is the existence of the whole bloody affair, like the joined version um, of volume one and two, because to my understanding of the of the Kill Bill movies, they were meant to be one film. Um, they just ended up being quite long. So we decided to split it into two parts. I think that if you try to view them as one movie, it becomes really apparent a lot of ways in which bloat exists in this story. It highlights sort of your issue, Alex, of the movement of sort of this like Japanese samurai movie to a uh, Western in the second half would be super, super jarring. I think because these two movies are a self-contained story and because it's Kill Bill Volume 1 and Kill Bill Volume 2, what Tarantino does is he sets up a kung fu Western samurai movie that is in reality just the story of a breakup, right? <laughs> All right, let's let's call it there, guys. Let's <laughs> amazing. Maybe part of it is that I ended up being disappointed in Bill's character mm-hmm. because interesting, you know, the first movie sets him up to be such an incredible villain, right? And then you get to the second movie, and he's just not that. You know, I mean, like, yeah, he's a villain, but he's not the villain that the first movie sets him up to be. I don't necessarily know how much I. Actually, you know, I I might agree with that just because, like, I think intentionally they were setting up like you're setting up a big bad. You're literally setting up. I have a list of people to kill. The the, the title of this movie is Kill Bill. What does that mean? But I think the reason why I like it as a sequel is because it says, fuck you. This is how it's going to like, I'm going to flip the script. Like, I'm going to let them go into something that's much more personal. And much more like it, this isn't going to be your slash them up like, you know, uh, vengeance movie that it is. And it is a vengeance movie at the end. You know, it's not a final it's not a final like display of like rage and whatever. The real like villainy behind it is that he knows exactly what to say. He literally got her to admit one of the hardest truths about herself is that she'll always be a killer. And maybe she wouldn't is wasn't fit to be a mother in that like way and i think having that be the real villainy that he knows exactly what to say to this woman who has no problem killing anyone she was going to kill him and he knew that i still think morally like he might have gotten some kind of victory over her and that's like the true villainy and the true like switching the table like flipping things as a sequel because you're really being like you're getting the big bad you're going to do the big bad and then the big bad just like okay kill me like fine I I just want to add something to that that I feel like thematically there is this big through line that crops up somewhat subtly in the first film. Well, in one scene, very apparently of this idea of violence begets violence in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I think that becomes so, so important to the conclusion of the film uh, relating to what you said earlier, Jake, about shifting from revenge to salvation. It is kill Bill because Bill, you know, tried to kill the bride. And it is this idea of violence begetting violence. And it switches to salvation as a means of wanting to end that cycle so badly. 
where thematically it connects to the first film in a beautiful way is with Beatrix's fight with uh, what's her name? Bernita. Bernita Green. Yes. <laughs> and uh, she has that remark she makes to Vernita's uh, daughter of like, I think it's like, I'll see, you know, see you in 10 years or whatever. I think it's it's if you still feel sore about this in 10 years, I'll be waiting or something. Yeah. Which I think is such a beautiful connection to the the final scene of volume two of you have the bride crying on the floor of a uh, motel bathroom. And it's such this beautiful mixture of like relief, of sadness, of, you know, of of anger. And I think there's also this element of of fear that her cycle of violence is probably going to perpetuate itself that, you know. Is this salvation ever really possible if the trail of bodies she's left, someone's going to come for her. And now she has a reason to live with her own daughter. That is so cool. And I think that's what makes him frightening as a villain. Like, is the the existence and knowledge of that? Thematically, it's great. I totally get what Tarantino is doing and what he's trying to do. I just I was let down. Um, I think perhaps. We should move on to Creed. I was just going to suggest that. Beautiful, yeah. Creed was uh, released in 2015, directed by Ryan Coogler, starring uh, Michael B. Jordan. It is the soft, I guess it's not really a reboot. It is the reimagining of the Rocky franchise, where in, in modern times, Apollo Creed's illegitimate son is uh, learning to be a fighter and is trained by Rocky. I think this movie, so I am not a huge fan of the Rocky franchise. I think like most people um, after the last few movies before Creed, mm-hmm. Rocky, uh, Sylvester Stallone really shown like that is a fantastic movie. And I think that gets lost in some of the sequels that came out leading up to Creed. What Creed does is it twists the plot of Rocky on its head. And, you know, makes this really beautiful story of a son who wants to prove himself. He's constantly caught in between of this. People compare him to his father, yet say he's not good enough to be anything without his father. And he's so just like destroyed by this. And I think it all leads up into that big climactic moment in the fight to prove he has to prove that he's not a mistake. Like. He's talking about himself as a person and a character, but it's also a metaphor for the whole movie. He has to prove that this making this movie, rebooting the Rocky franchise, wasn't a mistake. <laughs> you know? That's pretty funny. Yeah. That, that's a pretty deep meta. <laughs> but I think it's so true, right? And sure, I, I, I think the other thing that I have to bring up is just the beautiful fight choreography, which is going to be so interesting to discuss in terms with Kill Bill Volume 2 of like, these absolutely gorgeous fights. They really go toe to toe. And I think, you know, both movies have this theme of violence and, you know, violence, getting violence, all that. Uh, Creed takes the conversation kind of a different way of why are you choosing this life of violence uh, when you don't have to? And he says, well, I do have to. I have to prove myself in this way. And the entire movie is saying you will kill yourself if you fight like this. And he says, it's not about that. It's about who I am inside, not my body, not the fight. Yeah. Right. Ryan Coogler is such a great filmmaker as well. And I think he is starting to build that kind of authorship on his own levels with his his projects that he's come up like Fruitvale Station. Wow. Like Black Panther. Like just Ryan Coogler is doing 
great work and I'm very excited to see where he goes. And I don't think anyone else could have had this like kind of respect for like, that was such a tall order rebooting this franchise. Yeah. What a weird thing. And I feel like what this movie did is put so much more emotion into a series that felt nostalgic to the point of going behind deep implication. Like if that makes sense, like the Rocky films are iconic, even if some got kind of dumb. But deciding to go this route with them and revitalize the story with emotion at the forefront um, and vulnerability, but not about Rocky, is such a wild and cool choice for this franchise. And, and it's interesting, especially what a modern day Rocky would look like. They tried it with Southpaw. Remember Daddy Gyllenhaal? <laughs> no, I don't remember that. Yeah, there's a movie called Southpaw with... Uh, yeah, 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 not important. But whatever. <laughs> Also, weird actors for boxing movies, like people just love them for like, it's so strange. Like you have your like, you know, that the Hillary Swank movie, like the people people love this world. What a bold move, but executed very, very well. Um, So like just flowers for Ryan Coogler um, and Michael B. Jordan taking on this role. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And he kills it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Throwing a few of my thoughts into the ring. Ding, ding. Clearly a super impressive director. However, So this was actually the first time I had seen this movie, and I was honestly pretty blown away with how good it was. I think it has a lot of really smart theming that it runs through the background of the movie a lot. You know, there's a lot that's very surface level as well. You know, there's like super um, simple connections you can build between like Bianca going deaf from her um, making her music and um uh adonis um could potentially die from boxing or it will eventually kill him um it did kill his father etc um that's like super super obvious but i think there's a little bit more nuance in the background with a handful of other themes another thing that you mentioned jake um with the decision to kind of make a sequel in this franchise that i think is so awesome is you know there are what seven movies in the rocky franchise god i've lost it's like it's like five plus Rocky Balboa. Rocky versus Predator, Rocky Alien. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess with uh, Creed and Creed 2, it's like eight. It's probably like eight or nine or seven or eight, whatever. Regardless, the fact that they don't take the easy way out of doing a soft reboot and they literally consider the history as it exists from like the, the most recent film before Creed was Rocky Balboa. And it's, you know, like 50, 60 year old Sylvester Stallone um, getting back into fighting. <laughs> you might not quite be that old, but like they consider even plot points from that movie in the creation of Creed, mm-hmm. which is such oh. a commitment to the world you're building your movie in. Yeah, I'm so excited to discuss these movies as sequels because I think they exist as sequels in such different ways um, yeah. between this and Kill Bill Volume 2. Um, then I think will be a super, super interesting discussion. This film, it feels real, even if it isn't, which is pretty rare for films to achieve in this particular sense of life. We mostly want escapism in our films. And by that extension, there is realism. But there are films where there are technically like they're technically an escape, but they're more obviously a reflection. And these films are so specifically like Ryan Coogler's and the Creed are so specifically filmed with life and the culture around Philly. And, you know, just from like the bikes, from, you know, like everything else, from the way like people talk from it feels so like we are watching these people's lives where you can have other films where like Kill Bill is an escapism. That will never be my life. But I, you could still relate. You could relate to you know, being a mother, the redemption and stuff. 
that like what Kugler does and what's very Kugler S is have hard things to watch, but it's only hard because we genuinely have been there. Like, how am I going to relate to the Rocky franchise besides like be motivated? That's how winning is done. Whatever. <laughs> it's 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 beyond like what he's with Creed is like really have these humanistic like some of those conversations between him and Tessa Thompson. Also, Tessa Thompson. Oh, she did a great job. So good. Uh, like, yeah, I think this movie like Tessa Thompson is absolutely incredible. Michael B. Jordan is absolutely incredible. I think people make a lot of jokes about Sylvester Stallone as an actor, but in this movie, he is really, really good. And it's easy to just like discount him as like a joke actor. But like the the way that by the way, he also co-wrote part of this movie, the way that Coogler handles the fights versus the emotional romantic scenes of the movie between Donnie and Bianca, like these fights, these training montages are so fast. And so like you get that you get the like training feeling that this movie like requires. But he takes such long, slow takes of like when Donnie first walks into Bianca's apartment. It doesn't show the apartment at all. It just follows him as he walks in and you barely see the apartment at all. But you see him and you see his face and you see like there's so many shots that are just Michael B. Jordan's face. And it it gives such an emotional feeling to this whole movie. But you like compare those attractive shots of his face in these romantic scenes to these like beat to shit shots of his face in the fights. And like he's he's got his swollen eyes and it's it's such an incredible comparison. I loved the camera work. I loved it because like there are these one shots where like you're you're circling. You're just circling this person in a ring. You're following almost the whole time. They're not blinking. You're not blinking. You know, it's that intimacy. And and even with like with Bianca, that was a great example of like going into the apartment. Like you're still not blinking because you're so entranced in this specific moment. And like, you know, it's a reflection of, you know, uh, Michael B. Jordan, like Creed, like Adonis's character, like he isn't like blinking. We don't blink. We get intimate with him because we're literally cycling their life as he cycles like in his life. And like camera work for the especially the fight scenes, actually phenomenal. You are in it like you are in the fight. You like go with it Yeah. to give Kill Bill credit because we're comparing it to Kill Bill. It does kind of the same thing where like there are quick cuts with like Tarantino. Like that's kind of like his thing and like the zoom in and like whatever. But there's still that intimacy. So are we, we just hopping into starting comparing? Yeah, I, I think we're there. Yeah, we I, should I, you know, open like, the gate. We're yeah. start, start the comparison. But yeah, I, I think as well as fight scenes, like they really go toe to toe. And like it's it's very if, if this was Kill Bill, the first one versus Creed, then I would give the advantage to Creed. But if this is Kill Bill 2 versus Creed, I think they're tied. Well, unfortunately, um, the whole point of this show is coming to a conclusion. And this is just my opinion, all right? Well, this this whole show is our opinions, even if they're wrong. <laughs> I mean, mine are going to be right. But like, yeah, the, the whole... No, I'm kidding. Glad I voted with you for Dark Knight then. Yeah, 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 yeah right. Uh, no, um, going, going, like, it's... I will say just one kind of, like, negative for Creed. I think Tessa Thompson's character, even though she was great, I do think she was kind of underutilized in the story. And I do think she kind of was treated more as a muse rather than a human being. And I think uh, surprisingly, surprisingly, I will say, because Tarantino is a piece of shit. I'm going to say Uma Thurman <laughs> as a character was handled a little bit better. And, and, and not well, but say- you're, you're comparing the lead of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. going to say, yeah. that but even I was going to say, even with that, like not just her, but L was treated way better. Yeah, I, I think it's good to note that this is the case. 
However, the closer, the emotional core comes from the relationship between Rocky and Adonis. Yeah. Obviously, it's good to note the treatment of women in films and like the the idea of like the woman is the savior to the to a male lead only existing to further their plot line, which in a lot of ways is the case in Creed. Like, obviously, it's a movie about him. So we don't get, you know, it, it's not going to focus as much time on her. But like we other than her being like, oh, I have a big show and, you know, them talking about their parallel lives and her being at his fight and running to his side etc she doesn't get a lot of development in her own right and he doesn't he doesn't sacrifice anything for her almost like it's not another thing just in comparison where it's like the pulling the rug from under us moments where like you know like kill bill volume two it's the whole like bill wasn't a climactic fight and like you're getting this conversation said but with creed rocky when he gets his diagnosis that shit hit like a rock for me like that was (laughs) Yeah, that shit was like you're gonna give Rocky cancer right now, like in the middle of this shit. And him, his little speech about how he basically has nothing left to live for because his wife is dead, his best friend is dead. Like the way that that is acknowledging what exists in the previous films, and just the emotional performance from Stallone about it is fucking incredible mm-hmm. yeah the writing of it of like he doesn't want treatment because his wife went through treatment and it didn't work and he just like doesn't want to put himself through that because it's not worth it like it's it's really it's done well another point that i want to bring up in comparison i guess so i said i didn't like bill in kill bill volume two like i didn't think he lived up to my expectations in comparison i think pretty ricky conlin in creed subverted my expectations in a great way where he wasn't the traditional villain they give him this really good justification of it's his last fight he's going to jail because he's a bad person and he brought a gun into whatever but he's not like a villain he's he's just the opponent you know and it plays to this whole theme of what rocky is telling donnie when he's training him of this is your biggest enemy which is the theme one of the major themes of the movie well i do think they both like end almost this is weird to say like and this i'm so glad this matchup happened honestly um i think it's such great. an interesting um, conversation i think they all both end similarly because they both don't really win at the end they both have very neutral victories very like small like moral victories but also like they're kind of they're not in the best best place i you could argue that adonis is in a little better place i think but also in in the aspects of the bride, like she genuinely like she has a daughter back, whatever she breaks down, like, you know, Bill very much got to her in the end. It's it, they, they end in such a similar fashion of just like not not when you like when you watch a boxing movie, you're waiting for the opponent to like knock him out, like for the victory screen. When you have a thing like Kill Bill, you're waiting for her to kill Bill and it for, to feel so good. But it, both of those don't leave you that like leaving into draw with Creed. And leaving in, you know, Bill dying, but like her, like being like, you know, really get into her with that conversation, I think is a very like similar way to leave these protagonists. Something I actually want to hop in on on the ending of Creed is I want to say in some senses was one of the things that let me down because considering the attention they play to what comes before the TKO by split decision ending is so overplayed in the Rocky movies mm-hmm. of like oh, this ended with no knockout, but we're going to give it to the opponent of our main character. 
but it was super close by spit decision. Like that's literally how the first Rocky film ends. And I think it like it happens a handful of other times throughout the series. The ending to the fight, I think, like obviously it's subverting expectations of expecting Adonis to win. But when coming from a series like Rocky, where that is the status quo. So speaking on that and kind of how we kind of talked about how Tarantino, we kind of, you know, it's an important note that Matthew made where it's like this, like was idealized as one movie. But like Tarantino was going to end it like regardless. This one, I think it was very clear that they wanted to keep going. It's that kind of sequel ship where it's like they want a franchise. And I think that's why it ended the way it did. And I think that's negative points for me as well, just because like you couldn't let it like kind of, you know, you, you could give him a more firm loss because yeah. he's only been boxing. He, sure, he's been boxing a long time, but he's best boxing the best you know um yeah. what i can't remember their weight class you know the world's best boxer of his weight class and they, it's such a close fight like I, I i don't know i don't know i think that the movie ends like the movie ends that fight ends that way because that's how rocky ended it is yeah it is the same fight <laughs> it's a, a nobody fighter who gets picked out uh from for reasons to fight the best boxer in the world and everyone thinks it's going to be a blowout and it goes the whole time. That's that's what the movie like. That's the story of the fight in Rocky. That's the story of the fight in Creed. And they do it that way. One hundred percent on purpose. Sure. Because they want to show that mirror, that distinction. I think the fight in Creed, like the end of that movie is positive, is more positive than Jake is giving it credit for. I agree. Because it should have been over in two rounds and it wasn't. I think for me, that's a win. And that makes it that I think that makes Creed better. That make that makes me like Creed more than Kill Bill. And I think it's because I like a happy ending and you guys don't necessarily like a happy ending. And that's the vanilla boy versus the cinephile. So I, I think I, 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 I want movies to make me. I think go ahead, go ahead, I think the bride she views her ending as a happy ending, but we as an audience still feel like, oh God, maybe this wasn't as happy. I think that's the distinction. I, I think I like the more nuance of it a little bit more is because like, I, I don't think both of these end in a negative light. I think they end in a very like, we're watching this and we're like, okay, I can see the positives, but also like homeboy lost, Rocky still has cancer. <laughs> like, and, 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 but like, you know, go for it. I think, I think the theme of it though, like, the story in Creed is you keep fighting, right? And so the idea is that the fight is never over. You're going to win some, you're going to lose some, but you fight as hard as you can. The final, final scene of Creed, of them going up the stairs, the iconic stairs from the first Rocky and subsequent mm -hmm. movies, like, and Rocky struggling to get up, but Donnie won't let him stop. Like, and they get to the top and the shot is framed with, they're standing side by side, but Donnie is in the middle. You know, it's mm -hmm. this like passing on this legacy. and. So I agree that it's setting up a franchise, but for me, the way that it's done is so beautiful and tasteful that I think it gets points for that. Sure. I think that's fair. This is going to be very difficult for me. Yeah, I think we're going to have to vote now. Um, I feel uh, like we've, I, I don't know what else there is to say. I know. I know. I just I don't know how I feel between the two. Um, yeah, this stuff. It's it's a rough. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, I genuinely love both these, and I think it's a great comparison of the two. Oh, I, I want to highlight the relationships that both have to their 
predecessors. Mm-hmm. Kill Bill exists as this sequel that in a lot of ways was meant to be just in the actual ending to the story of its first. They're meant to be one more cohesive tale where Creed exists in this, you know, soft reboot sort of territory. Um, I think Alex put it really poetically talking about the actual ending scene is that this is this is the passing of the torch from mm-hmm. Rocky to Adonis. Um, so that it functions, you know, as both a soft reboot and more more like a, a little bit like a traditional sequel in, in a sense. You know, yeah. um, I I don't I, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's such an interesting comparison because you would think that Kill Bill Volume 2 would be more like a true sequel in terms of continuing in just continuing the story. And it would like continue those same themes, continue the like style. Right. And it doesn't versus Creed that being so far removed from Rocky you know, eight movies later or whatever, it is so interesting that it pays so much like homage to Rocky and to like the world that it's in, that it like digs its heels in. In it's such an interesting contrast. So it, it what makes a better sequel? Yeah, I, I think I know how I want to vote, but I I I want the I almost want the other movie to win. It feels so weird. Um, and I'm just trying to see if I think if I'm it's in the like, same wavelength. I, I'm trying to figure out if it's like because am, am I voting based on my personal preference of which movie I like better or, you know, like wh- what is the actual what? How, how am I voting? Why am I voting that way? Why do I want to vote that way? This is a super <laughs> tough one. Um, I just, you know, again, Early we'll, on. We'll cut, Go a cut, a cut, a cut a big portion of hey, this. Wait, what, um, what's the name of our podcast? The Tough Cut. The Tough, the cut. tough cut. Guys. I just want to I just want to call out to both um, Jake and Alex here that these were fantastic picks. Uh, truly, truly thank fantastic. You, picks. You. Makes yeah. this a really hard uh, choice to make. I'm going to. Is any. Uh, I guess I go ahead, Jake. <laughs> I was just going to say, I, I think I'm ready to write it down, but let's do it. We're going to let Matthew go last here. <laughs> Don't make me do this. Yeah, Matt's got to go um, last again. I'll go first because I feel like I was the most decisive. I picked Creed because. I just think it handles its theme so beautifully for me as a sequel. I felt like it was more cohesive with the series and franchise as a whole. And for me, I feel like that is an important factor of a movie. Also, I just felt good at the end, which is important for me. (laughs) I picked Creed. Oh, okay. So, uh, no, I I think uh, (laughs) my heart wins because I wanted Creed to win, but I wanted to vote for Kill Bill. So I was actually in the same uh, pool as Matthew, but I I decided um, this was really tough for me. Kill Bill Volume 2, I think, is something I know I like. Like, I like that ending. I like there's a lot of more nostalgia for me, whatever. In the theme of our bracket sequel, like Showdown, I think Creed as a sequel has meant more recently and also was so bold. I think was so bold in what it did going forward that like it, it was a little sway. It was a very tiny sway. Um, and we'll see how it does going forward. Yeah. So I picked I picked Creed. I, I actually don't know which one I personally prefer. I went into this thinking it was going to be an easy blowout for Kill Bill. But then I watched Creed and it really threw my thinking um, on its head um, <laughs> is that the switch of genres, I think, orchestrates the expansion of the world and the plot line of the first film. Of course, I think a huge amount of that is attributable to the fact that the movies were basically meant to be a single movie. What I think is really important to consider as a film in 
uh, this is actually more a point for Creed. So, you know, maybe, maybe in some senses, I'm really just changing my vote, uh, which you're not allowed to do on the show. Is that <laughs> I think only Tarantino could have done Kill Bill Volume 2. Sure, Kugler probably is the only person who could have done Creed as well as Creed was done. But the way Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 exist in relation to each other, which is just like a fascinating thing for a sequel to do. Wow. So moving on from the top half of the bracket in round one, we have The Dark Knight and Creed uh, going head to head in a couple weeks. Next up, we've got Shrek 2 versus Evil Dead 2 and The Godfather Part 2 versus Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. It's going to be a good one, guys. Throughout all the listeners there, um, you won't have to wait weeks for these episodes because we're releasing the entire first bracket together. So we're your three co-hosts. I'm Matthew. I'm Alex. <laughs> and I'm Matthew. I'm Jake. Always be plug-in. Um, if you enjoyed the show, uh, make sure to rate and um, subscribe to it on all of your uh, traditional podcast listening outlets. And additionally, give us the follow at Tough Cut Pod. That is Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. We also want the conversation to happen with you guys. If you follow us and like want to tweet like sequels you think have been left out or, you know, where you know alex is totally wrong you could send him hate mail like that's fine too or if you think i'm absolutely right let me know in the comments below please <laughs> no you're not alone um yeah i we we love this conversation it doesn't just stop with the three of us here um this is why we want to do this because we're passionate about this and we love talking and you know change our opinions or just share yours we really we really uh care about it thank you so much for listening we're the tough cut you found out today what made the cut Chime in next week. See what else we talk about. That was awful. <laughs> <laughs>